All right, well, good morning. Am I thinning out this class? This topic is having its toll. Oh, there we go. There we are. Let's all record it. Well, welcome back. Uh, Social Justice Week 9. Just have this and two more weeks to go. Um, and it, it keeps morphing. And I look back, and I wish I could cut the classes per topic, and it just runs over. You guys talk too much. So we're kind of in that. We're going to catch up, and we're going to start our subject today, and, and I know we won't finish. Um, so social justice news of the week, there is just so much to choose from. It's been amazing. Um, there's a company getting sued because their air conditioning temperatures are set for men, not for women. And, uh, you know, men want it colder, they wear suits or whatever the reason. But it, it is kind of interesting that to have a quality state in workplace and when you have physiological differences, what do you do with that? I mean, bathrooms and everything. So... <clears throat> you can never truly say equal, right? And then this week was the 50th anniversary of landing on the moon. And one little narrative through all that was how sexist and racist our space program was. Because they were all white men. The Soviets did have some women on their space team. And so I guess it's a shame. I mean, if there was obviously true racism, we'd want to deal with it. But it's a shame to overshadow the the whole program. And, and then Babylon B put those two things together and said, Women decide they don't want to go to the moon when they find out how cold it is. <laughs> Babylon B is hitting it strong today, Scad. Oh, interesting. Well, you know, and just being a former fighter pilot, um, you know, when women were introduced to the cockpit, they had to deal with all those physiological differences and you know, the old style of what you did <laughs> on a long journey had, had to be dealt with. Um, there's been lots, I won't go into these, all sorts of stuff about acting in Hollywood. We're going to have a black mermaid, a black female James Bond. I hear that's a rumor. Um, there's been a lot about Scarlett Johansson. Can she play a cisgendered person when she's not, or a transgender person when she's cisgendered? And I don't know. It just seems to me like if you're an actor, you're supposed to act people that aren't you. But it, it's kind of going out of control. I think they're kind of eating their own now. This was a really interesting one. I heard the term algorithm justice. And uh, so it was, it was a program that wasn't about justice issues. It was about um, just the advanced uh, AI, facial recognition technology, and how, you know, the whole privacy versus security, you know, values that you have in a society. Like, everyone's face is getting, this was in Britain, everyone's face is getting analyzed and looking for known whatever suspected, whatever. Well, it's, it's very possible that that facial recognition would be better at one race than another. And so you have that, is it possible you would have one population beginning flagged more than another, and is that a just thing? So it's, it's interesting. You don't think about some of that stuff. And then, of course, our beloved president stepped in it once again. So, uh, and I, again, I don't know the context. I'm sure there's context. I'm, there might have been follow-up discussion, but I just want to take the words as given. Um, so Trump had a tweet out that basically told some congresswomen to go back to the country you came from. And this kind of goes back to our talk on, on race. So if you're dealing with race versus ethnicity versus nationality, this is an example where that kind of gets mixed up. So he's, he's being decried by a lot as being a racist tweet. Now, it's certainly something a racist would say. So it's kind of a, probably a stupid thing to say. And maybe I see those hands. It's probably a, um, 
Um, if it was a brother in my church saying that stuff, I would go rebuke him. But if you really look at the words, it's not really racist. It's more about nationality, right? Country of origin. You might call it xenophobic, where you're afraid of foreigners. Um, so it's interesting where that language, and you start having a debate, and they're slicing and dicing the words. Now, you might step back and say, why are we even in, in this position? But And then one of the responses, um, Representative Presley said this. Again, I don't want to impugn too much, but the words themselves we need to address. We don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. We don't need any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice. We don't need Muslims that don't want to be a Muslim voice. We don't need queers. Hold up. We don't need queers that don't want to be a queer voice. And so that's where we want to be careful that we've said race is not a biblical category. It's a socially constructed category. And so so then to assume that you have some ideology or a thought process or position based on the color of your skin, that's something we as Christians would absolutely want to avoid. Now, there may be some truths there that she's dealing with that we would want to interact with. So again, I'm saying don't throw the whole discussion out because of that. Don't overreact to that. Learn how to be pastoral and um, conversant in that discussion. But as is, those are the kind of words we wouldn't want to have. And that those kind of words actually happen in the church as well. I could give you citations from evangelical pastors who are saying things like that. And so I'm trying to not, don't bifurcate everything. Just deal with words and, and interact with them in the right way. We haven't even started class yet. What are all these hands for? What? What can't you wait on? <laughs> the asymmetry of it all. There is such an asymmetrical justice. Speaking, because uh, we're talking about politics today, and honestly, Some, I, wish, yeah. I wish we were focusing on biblical because. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. Realm, Let me just say, I'm trying to I'm trying to engage politics, politics with the Bible. That's the point. Okay. I don't. I'm not trying to just have a political discussion. We need to think through our politics biblically. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking that an asymmetrical justice should not be... We should be speaking some What do you mean by asymmetrical justice? I mean that I have to denounce my white privilege, for example, or um, that if I disagree with a person of color, I get the racist card right on you. That's okay. So... There's just an asymmetry in the world that is, um, you know, it's difficult. Yeah, and that I guess in my political beliefs I would agree with you, and then I'm trying to think how do I react as a Christian? The New Testament gives us no hope or thought that you'd have symmetrical justice. You are going to be a persecuted people, and so if we respond in a way that's very defensive, and woe is me. I'm not sure the gospel's coming through clearly, even though you're probably right in exactly what you're saying. And, and I'm re- I don't know how to respond. I'm, I'm wrestling with this. I'm trying to divide between the biblical mandate and what we see happening in Yeah, and, and I'm not a cultural expert. I don't know how to talk these things. Yeah. And, you know, as I look at, I have these different Christian leaders I listen to and watch, and some of them are great on exegesis. And then there's some that are good at exegeting the culture. And that's not me. This is kind of a weird topic for me. Um, anyway, there are some other hands. Have you been diffused? Well, yeah. <laughs> he never, he never uh, mentioned names. He just said that if people are in a particular topic, if you don't like, really, if you don't like our culture, what we're doing, then you should not 
Well, that would be different. That's not what he said the first time. But that would be different. I don't want to get into parsing the words. It's, it's not about a person. I don't really care about these people. I'm trying to deal with the words and the attitudes. Exactly. Yeah. And that's very important. Yeah. Exactly right. Because those words could be said. I mean, we all have relationships with people that would say a certain thing that you know would not make good headlines. And yet, you know them. So the more you know someone, the better you can assume motives. Even then, you'll never be 100%. And that's why we got to sit down and have conversations. I'm with you. Uh, Josh, will you open some prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that you would um, just uh, bless our conversation this morning. And, uh, he pleads us that you would give us hearts that are soft and humble, uh, and that we would desire to be conformed to your word in the way that we interact and view the things around us. Amen. And I'm just one of 40 here trying to figure this stuff out. I really am. Um, last week I, I quoted a lot from a pastor in D.C. called uh, Tibidion Wavili, who's more on the social justice wing, but a, definitely an evangelical, definitely a pastor's heart. Um, and so he came out this week, interestingly enough, with an apology to evangelicals, to some evangelicals. And so I was actually, I'm appreciative, number one, if anyone owns up to a wrong that they've done. And we should always be, have a, have a culture and an attitude that that is welcome. Um, there are, of course, those on the right just jumping on them. See, I told you so. I'm like, dude, he's, a, he's asking for forgiveness here. Um, it's, and the things he said were some of the things I've been concerned about in his writings. Um, I do listen to him. He interacts with the other side a lot. Um, but I always wonder, where did you get that? He talked, he, he apologized for being, uh, general, overly general, generalizations, uh, with an issue, showing frustration and anger, like probably anybody on Twitter does, speaking before he has all the sufficient facts. I think those are really good things to remember for both sides. Now, unfortunately, it was a very vague apology. He didn't call out a specific issue, a specific person, and maybe he's doing that under the scenes, right? Not publicly. And for a public speaker, that would be hard to do. Right? You couldn't apologize to hundreds and hundreds of people. And it, maybe it wouldn't be appropriate. But I do wish, like I've been trying to figure out where these dividing lines is of evangelicalism, but what's outside? And I think more specifics would have let us know what, where did he find that, oop, I've jumped over the line into a, a secular mentality or, or whatnot. Um, so that's unfortunate. He did mention that he moved back to the U.S. right after the Michael Brown shooting. He didn't mention that that's one of the issues, but that is, in my mind, one of the things that has been overly generalized too quickly, um, this is the hands up, don't shoot in Missouri. MLK 50, which is about a year and a half ago conference, which kind of set off the current firestorm, um, there was defenses for Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin. And I found it unfortunate that there are much clearer examples of, of police brutality out there without some of the cloudy details than those instances. And that doesn't mean that Racism didn't happen there. It doesn't mean there's not systemic racism. I, I thought it was unfortunate that they used maybe not the best examples that are out there. Um, so that's one of the issues. That's one of the most specific cases that people argue about. But anyway, I'm, I'm glad he apologized, and I hope there's a more of an ongoing dialogue so that these these sides aren't separated so much because I think that's what needs to happen. Um, last week I talked about. I tried my best. I, this whole concept of a white evangelical church, 
And we have a black church. I never hear about an Asian church or a Korean church other than details. So it's just not in our cultural discussions much. I'm sure in other countries it is. Um, the highlights there were that often the white evangelical church, whoever those are, are silent, they're indifferent, they're dismissive of racial issues. They're often hyper-individualistic. And they falsely claim to be apolitical. Oh, we're not going to touch it because that's political. But when it comes to abortion, they're very political. So don't say you're not political. Just say that you're choosing which issues. Or they might say, hey, you say you're pro-life, but all that means for you is anti-abortion. What about all these other life issues? Adoption and caring for the poor and public education. Um, and what I meant to do last week was ask for any of your inputs as far as your own personal experiences, family members, or whatnot. What do you think some of the real vitriol or criticisms of white evangelical churches. And I hate that term, i got to be honest. But No? Well, I, I don't think we need to be defensive about it. I think we need to own it if it's true. And, uh, sure. Repent. But uh, I could criticize anybody anywhere, anytime yeah. for their lack of perfection. I mean, it's easy enough to do. If yeah. I decide I want to criticize you, I could do it for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> one, you, one of the uh, early, I love you. <laughs> early on under your ministry, and I've quoted this so many times, you say, if, if, you don't, if you can't think of enough things to criticize me, I can help you out. <laughs> Which is such a good stance to have. Okay, I, I felt like I'm a white guy talking about what other people think, and I don't know. Um, the role of government, we looked at 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13. There are really few specifics there, but those are some of the classic passages that people run to to figure out what is the role of government, what does the Bible say. you got to remember the context of those passages is much more about how we as individuals and how we as a church live under a government. But there are emphases there. Um, the right side will tend to emphasize the need to submit to authority. The left side will tend to um, emphasize the role of government in doing good and bad and wanting to pool resources so that the government can do good and bad. And so um, I don't think there's a you know, you can kind of point a string a little bit to those passages. I don't think it's going to be a, a watershed proof um, either way. We talked about the different labels of being left and progressive or right and conservative and how you want to separate theologically and politically. Um, and then we looked, and I put this on your sheet. So I, we kind of had a wild discussion on the socialism capitalism. I broke it in that that first row is really more, I don't know how much we can really argue. This is probably more, I would say, a little more authoritative. This is what the Bible would say that people might turn to support. Clearly, the state has some ability to use coercive power. It has the sword. It does collect taxes. We're supposed to give those taxes. It's called what we owe them, Paul says. Uh, it's their due. On the other side, if your socialism goes so far as to get rid of private property, which true pure socialism would be and, and communism would be, that would definitely be unbiblical. I think we can be authoritative on that. The whole idea that you can't steal, you shouldn't covet, that we're stewards. Now, spiritually, we would say we're not owners of things, but horizontally in the world, we're the owners, right? We're the stewards that God has given. And so I think You've got to support the concept of private property to be biblical, in my opinion. Now, that second row are things that, yeah, we'll get a little squishier. And we threw most of these out last week. Again, that idea on the socialism side that the government's involved in good and evil, and so they would be involved in caring for the downtrodden, not just 
individuals and private organizations. Um, a concern for greed and materialism, which I obviously we should all share as Christians. Certainly, if you think the Old Testament applies to America, you could it would be easier to make a case for soul shulhum. Uh, and then, and even in Acts 2, they say the New Testament coming together, pooling resources for the common good. So those would be some of the principles and passages Christian, democratic, socialists uh, might turn to. Again, don't fly off the handle of someone using the term. They probably mean it in a slightly different way than you think. Um, we've got to ask people what they mean. On the capitalism side, um, the idea of voluntary contracts, some kind of means testing for welfare, um, and just basically understanding the depravity of man and that, you know, sinful men in power will abuse their power. That's just obvious. And that the framers of our constitution saw that as a real danger. I wanted to diffuse that. Yeah. Did you talk about how markets work? No. Is that a biblical concept? I, I would say so. So that... You win, I win. In socialism, you lose, I win. Therefore, when you look at things like availability of food and medicine in Venezuela, I mean, that, I could bring up hundreds of examples, but the, the whole... Defining the way markets work is really intrinsic to this concept. Would you, would you want that in our confession as a church, that... You need to understand how markets work. And no, you were bringing up other things. Believe me, I have real interest in what happens. <laughs> well, I, then you're, you're avoiding the world. I mean, that's the problem. I, if, you're, if your friends at work are talking about the economic issues, let's find a way to, to get to... So I would put some of what you said, personally, now I, I could be wrong. These are just my columns, in the neutral column. Like how markets work. I'm, I'm not going to have any how markets work threshold to become a member of a church. But I, I'm not disagreeing with you, by the way. I am a capitalist. But I would say from a biblical standpoint, some of that's neutral. Now, some of what you said we did talk about and I think is biblical. So, for instance, the capitalist response to greed and materialism would be, but what really produces the better effect? Where do people get lifted out of poverty? Even if it's driven by greed and materialism, would that not really be the way of loving our neighbor? Uh, not necessarily. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm, I'm not arguing with you. Do you have the Robert Look at Venezuela. It's one of the richest countries in the world. So, let, here's my point. None, all those details are great. Hold those positions. Have good arguments. Don't make that some standard of orthodoxy. Don't be being a capitalist a standard of orthodoxy. We're missing the priority and the focus. Hold your positions. Hold them dearly and Go be a political activist if you want. It's just not going to be our identity as a church is my issue. I'm telling you, you bring in half this room full of Welsh people, you're going to have a way different discussion in here. And if you think they're less spiritual than you, I'm going to challenge you. Absolutely challenge you. market, that's a who can wield the government's wisdom. 
Yeah, I, I'm not arguing. I, I, I'm not arguing. So other things like that might be in the neutral category, what you think about tax rates, minimum wage laws, free health care, free tuition, public school funding. I am saying, my, I guess my stance, but I could be wooed on some of this, I'm sure. That's a neutral category to me. That is not something I'm going to let get in the way of evangelism and discipleship and maturity in Christ. Just not. I'm, I'm going to go study those because I'm actually interested in those topics. Now, I do listen to some podcasts that would make very, they would try to make very biblical cases for some of these issues. And so be it. If you're making a biblical case for it, then it becomes more of a, a priority issue. Um, the last row there, just with the stars. Okay, what are some things, if you're in a certain camp, this is what I would want to emphasize to you. I'm not even trying to change your opinion, but, you know, avoid hyper-secularism. I, I think the history is clear. Socialism tends to be very secular. I mean, communism actually got rid of God altogether. You don't want to put your trust in the state. Um, and you shall not covet. Some of, some of their design is driven by covetousness. Um, just like you said, it's not greed in, on one side. It's, they're, co- they're coveting, really. And then avoid, avoid, I mean, as a Christian, even if you think capitalism is the way our society should be, that's the best thing for society, you as a Christian in that and holding that position, try to avoid some of the, some of the charges that capitalists might get. You don't want to be seen as someone who's indulgent, who you're doing it, this, I just want to have more stuff. I mean, if that's what we're identified as a Christian, I think that's where you get to the white evangelical church, is, Christians are seen sometimes as being more in the political camp and just caring about more stuff and not caring about others. And you could say that I don't want a law that forces you to give your stuff to others. Fine. But you as a Christian ought to be very charitable and giving, however you see fit. Um, we don't want to be ones who are seeking pleasure and avoid treating the Constitution like the Bible. Did I miss your question? Oh, well, I would just want to make a comment. I'm thinking um, a good doctrine of vocation could supplement one's argument if you're going to make a case for uh, a capitalistic market. You know, if we are to perform our duties or, or whatever role we choose to take on, the cobbler, what have you, um, we are doing it for the glory of God. And recognition of that is, I think, um, you could make probably a case if you're going to argue that I'm doing this for the glory of God. I'm going to provide this product to the best of my ability. And as a consequence, you know, both both win. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think that's one of the helpful features. And yeah. I think when you read Adam Smith, when he's talking about the invisible hand guiding it, he doesn't straight up say who God is, but there's that idea that when we do perform our duties, you know, with um, sincerity and, and ingenuity, everybody benefits. Yeah. That's what he's arguing there. Because he wasn't coming from it from an economic standpoint. I think he was coming from it from as an ethicist, trying to say what's just. And that was one of the helpful yeah, features that Adam brought to the conversation. And Luther, that was a big thing for Luther, wasn't it? That, you know, we're the cobbler, the... The milkmaid, uh, everybody is an ambassador for Christ. And it's, of course, sharing the gospel, but also in their occupation. You bring glory to the church, into, into Christ. All right, so let's turn to a less controversial topic of reparations. <laughs> Don't worry about what's on your sheet so far. That's just to leave you with something.
Um, again, I'm not after your position. I don't want you just to defend your position. I just want to, this, I'm just trying to teach a way to think through a subject, even if it's one that you have really strong opinions about. Let's give deference, the Steelman argument, what would be biblical principles on both sides of this? Even if you think they're used wrongly and, and appealed to falsely, what, what would people at least claim? Passages or principles? Reparations. So maybe I need to define it. So basically that, um, that based on slavery or Jim Crow, we don't have to go back to slavery, based on clearly systematic injustice in the past, that we would try to make amends for that. So that most time it's talked about in money, that money would be passed from one group to another. And I'll just tell you right now, there's a lot of practicalities that are going to be challenges. Even if you like this, even if you liked this, uh, if you thought theoretically I would want reparations, who owes who what? I mean, how much? How far back do you go? How do you draw this? That, everyone admits that's going to be a practical challenge. So, and I don't think the Bible is going to help us on that in, in some of those details. Now, and so, how would you repair the damage from 50 years ago or 150 years ago? Right. And had nothing to do with the injustice, basically. Right. 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 Yeah. And it's actually nice to have a non-racial situation because it takes some of the vitriol out. But yeah, these are tough. So what do, what do we do? Is that a right thing? Is that a wrong thing? They could. They could. All right, biblical principles. Focus. I mean, I think, I don't have a chapter and verse, but just the category of uh, restorative justice, where you're restoring to someone who's been uh, wrong. So you're saying that is a biblical principle? Yeah. It's not the only type of justice that you see in the Bible. Right. Yeah, so actually the first few issues there, Exodus 22, Leviticus 6, those would definitely be, I mean, in, in the Old Testament Israel, that was a law. If you, if you stole money, you had to pay back fivefold or whatever it was. Um, you have, they, some people feel Luke 19, that's Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus was converted from a, being a tax collector, he stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So that would be a passage, that first few verses on your sheet there. Yeah, so definitely the idea of restoring a wrong is biblical. Okay, what else? Yes. What did I say? Restoration. Yeah, restitution, restorative. I, maybe there's a difference, I don't know. Okay, and so that would be the response there. But their desire for restorative justice but is sound. My question is, is it restoration or restitution? Because 
Is there a category in the Bible where there's a whole society that records something to another society? So, and that's really the question. That, that's one of the big questions is, can these biblical principles be applied outside of the individual realm? So that is the question. All right, so I'll just go into, so Tim Keller would make the case that yes, there is such thing as generational evil and generation and corporate responsibility. And so he would turn to say, uh, well, you have passages like this, Exodus 34, Numbers 14, forgiving, uh, God keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, who, who by, will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, on the children and the children's children of the third or fourth generation. So it depends on how I read that. Now, that's in contrast to passages that talk about, um, let's see, I have a, one example there. Ezekiel 18, Deuteronomy 24. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. And so you, you have appeal to different verses that are both, by the way, part of the law. And so you don't have that difference. Some verses seem to say, oh, the, you know, the iniquity is, comes to the, to multiple generations. And some will say, no, you can't hold the son accountable. And so it kind of depends on how you interpret those. And again, I'm not here to settle this case, so I'm not going to answer those for you. I'm just here to say that there are passages that people turn to. Here would be a couple of, three examples that Keller turns to. Joshua 7. Uh, so you have, um, what's his name? Achan. Uh, how do you say it? Uh, so Achan basically sins. He steals some stuff, um, and they're searching for this stuff. Joshua 7, verse 11 says, Israel has sinned. So you have one individual who has sinned, maybe a few people around him who knew about it. Israel sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. All these days, they have stolen and lied and put them among their belongings. Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan and his sons and daughters. Now his whole family is going to get punished. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Now, unless the family was literally knew about it and didn't say anything, which is possible. Um, but even so, then you have Israel as a corporate body saying, let me get through my stuff. Uh, Daniel 9. Daniel sitting in Babylon and he confesses to God, we have sinned. Now, this is the, 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 um, not the Exodus. Exile. The exile was from generations of, of unfaithfulness, particularly talked about not giving the land a Sabbath, right? Um, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna send you away and I'm gonna, I'm gonna Sabbath my land because you're not gonna be there to work on it. And so we're talking about multiple generations have led up to the exile. And uh, Daniel says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments rules. To us, O Lord, belong open shame. So Daniel is claiming that shame. I don't know if we see any hint of lack of faithfulness in the narrative, Daniel narrative up to this point. Maybe, but still, he's clearly repenting for something in the past. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled. 
against him and to our kings, to our princes and fathers, because we have sinned against you. And then Romans 5. We uh, went through Romans about a year and a half ago on you have Adam and those who are guilty because of Adam's sin and then those who are now forgiven because of Jesus' righteousness. Um, so this federal headship. And so that we we are guilty because of Adam's sin. So that whole idea of not necessarily being individualistic. So those are three of the passages that he turns to. Um, so what was the hand about? Yeah. Wait, there was a hand up here first. I was going to say even So you're just saying that's not the first instance? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying it, it goes even it, it, it's before it comes out that Achan's the one that has done it. God's already, you know, visiting some judgment on it corporately. Even though God knows exactly who the individual yeah. is, you know, then disobeys. But you know that's why they say there's a problem, is because they're they're receiving God's favor. Yeah. I have going in order. <laughs> well, Israel was God's covenant nation. And that would be the answer. The From this side. So. I think he's actually for reparations. I think so. I don't know if he knows how to get there, but I, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I think he's trying to make that case. But maybe not. Maybe he's just trying to make the case for a generational repentance, not necessarily reparations. Yeah, I shouldn't, I'm not sure. I saw him. So you'd see the hand. I was just wondering, and forgive me if I'm speaking out of turn, but could you also say, like, that we're responsible, like, original sin, that we're responsible for Adam's sin could go in the category of, like, yeah, th that's what this is talking to. Okay. Basically that we're guilty because of Adam's sin. Okay. And so the response from this side would be, we're talking about an Old Covenant Testament Israel type of issue. And you would say, can we ever replicate this? Um, the federal head of Adam and, you, and Christ are very unique. That's not something you can replicate in the world. That would be, that would be one of the responses. Uh, Jeremiah 31 would be a response as well. And so this is going into this where um, he's talking about the new covenant that's going to come. In those days, so the new covenant days, they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall set on edge. So some would say that Jeremiah 31 would be a very specific. When it comes to the new covenant opposed to the old covenant, we're not dealing in these generational ways. So that would just be one of the responses. Um, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Good point. It, it would absolutely would. Yeah. Um. What else? Biblical principles that might come into play here. Or neutral things, things that, um, I mean, I've already mentioned it. 
Even if you agreed with it, how much? To and from whom? I mean, I, talk, I listened to one guy this week that he found out. So he's black, and he has ancestors who were slaveholders. He said, what do I do, pay myself? You know, it's kind of funny, but it does make it difficult. What about, so what about just conceptually, so if we think we should never have to pay for something we didn't do, what if you have, you know, man A owns a watch, it's stolen by man B, who sells it to man C, sorry, female C, I can't be sexist in this analogy. All right, so he's got a watch, it's rightfully his, B steals it and sells it to C, it's found out, should he give the watch back? Well, he hasn't done anything wrong, right? Yeah, there's still nothing with that in art right now with the Jews, all the art that was stolen from the Jews. It's still going on right now yeah. where people find art and they have to decide it might be worth $15 million and they have to... And someone, someone bought it. Yeah. yeah. And so you can say that this guy, really, he originally stole from him and now in the end he's really stolen from him. I mean, at some point, we can't undo everything in the world, right? That's so... But our response can't be, but it wasn't me. Well, if, if it's accurate to restore, and I suppose if there's a way to do it, it can't be because I had nothing to do with it. That can't, that's not enough. That's not enough of a reason. Because we have, and I could go to multiple levels of where both people lose out and all this stuff. Um, I mean, really, if someone goes to jail for stealing, that money doesn't necessarily go back, right? It, no one, there's really never true restitution just because someone goes to jail. Um, which goes into a whole other argument of how you do justice. So I just think we have to be careful with our responses. If our response is, I want my stuff, that's wrong. That's not Christian. Now, if, if you see it as a real injustice to try to get the stuff back, right, then, then that's a different argument. So talk at, I'm trying to encourage you to talk at levels of biblical justice, of biblical principles, and don't come off as some selfish and different person. Um, and yet, I mean, these are real. I think when you, even if you look at the Old Testament law, there, there's a lot of practicality built into that law that, you know, ultimate justice isn't going to happen here. And so I think, I think, I put this in a neutral category, but really there, there's a biblical element here. Like, you really want the one offended to be restored, right? And how do you, how do you restore someone who's dead? But then you could make the argument that their children would be in a much better place in life had this not happened, which is true in many cases. And so, but it's so, it's so convoluted. How does someone who's in dire straits today, how much of that was because of Jim Crow? How much of it was horrible current policies? How much of it was immorality? It gets to be a mess and tough. And so it is complicated. And so don't expect, expect such simple answers, I guess. And don't be angry. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Often what you see, say even in that quote I had from the congresswoman, the response is racist or even more so. And the and we talked about first week how difficult something like affirmative action is where you have quotas. 
you can see what the intent is, is to even a playing field, and yet you're actually having to be, you could argue, racist in the process of trying to restore. And those are tough, right? You, you could see the principle on either side. So that's another one we could throw up here. Um, you could even throw something that we might all be agreed upon, like abortion. And let's give the other side their due. What would be a biblical reason they might support abortion? You could do this with just about any topic. Um, so what would I say maybe to this side? What would be some of the pastoral counsel I'd give someone on this side? Um, I'd come back to this lot. Prioritize your new identity in Christ. You know, wherever you are, however right you might be on some of these social issues, if you as an individual Christian are living in categories of race or socioeconomics in a way that clouds your identity in Christ, you're, you're missing it. It's not good for your soul. Sometimes I think, like, if I would come into a room and my children were fighting, it's not like I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to figure out who's the more wrong here and punish them and let the other one go off. No, I care about each of these hearts. In my, in my home. So to this one, I might say, say, you know, Micah stole something from Joshua, a toy. So Micah, I'm obviously going to address as, you know, you don't take things. Uh, Joshua, I'm still going to address as, you know, don't be so selfish and you might want to share and don't be so upset when injustice happens in the world. You have a savior. Thank God, you know, and, but my counsel to them might be just very different for the same situation. I find that to be true on here. I might say, say I believe in restorative justice and I think it's possible or something here. I'm still going to tell that person, find your identity in Christ. Quit worrying about all this race stuff and all the history. Don't quit worrying about your past. Look at your future. Look at the glory you have in heaven. And you're just going to get mired down and you're going to have a divided church if you, if you talk about these things. And over here, I'm going to say, well, you might be right. This is impossible. It would be unjust to even try. But, but don't be selfish. <laughs> don't hold on to your stuff. You need to give and you need to listen to someone's hearts. So you just might have different counsel to both sides. Obviously, you shall not covet. So unbelievers who are for reparations, they just want, some of them just want stuff, right? It's not really a justice issue for them. They want to have more money. Um, how about just the fact that God is sovereign? I mean, the world is a mess. 1 Samuel 2.7 says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Even through injustice, there might be real injustice going on. But above all, God has determined these things. God has determined what nation we live in, what parent you were going to, what horrible situation. Um, ultimately, what you're really railing against is God. To be bitter, to be upset with where you are in life. And that's not good for your heart. You're really saying, God, you got it wrong. Even though God works providentially through sin and injustice. So you might not be wrong on the injustice, but how do you as a Christian who, who is on the left side of the board here, how do you respond? And on the right side of the board, I'd say, well, avoid greed and selfishness. We're stewards, not owners. I'm going to turn that a bit. It's not your stuff. If God wants you to give it to him, give it to him. And how would you know that? I don't know. But hold, we should hold everything we have as being stewards. And we want to be faithful stewards. And we're not going to take it to heaven with us. Uh, consider your responsibility and apathy today more than guilt of the past. And I kind of mentioned that last week. You don't have to be like this man C here. He wasn't guilty of anything. And yet he was still responsible to return that. And so that, that might be something that comes up in here. So quit worried about being called a racist and being guilty. Get rid of those terms. But really think where, because of my position of privilege, of money, of power, um, Bible has a lot to say to you. 
like to care for the weak and to care for the underprivileged. You have responsibility. So you're not going to be guilty for something 150 years ago, but you are going to be guilty with what you do with that now. And resist hyper-individualism. I think that's important. We are a corporate body. That's a big thing in reform circles, too, that, of the corporateness of the body. Um, obviously, we don't have time for another subject. And what I do want you to do, though, is next week we're going to go to the Statement on Social Justice in the Gospel, which was my original plan for this whole class, just to dive through that thing. We'll give one or two classes on it. But So there's the website there. Um, please read that. I've already given you kind of a summary of some of the things. Um, a lot of it, I would predict, 80% at least, there will be zero controversy. It'll be, yep, 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 that's obvious. And then I want to kind of dive into some of the, um, maybe the controversial statements there that is really, so the MLK 50 was a social justice conference. Six months later, this statement came out, and it was the right response. And the fireworks have been going ever since. Um, and what I want to do then is to get into, one of the comments there they say is, um, I can't find it on here. But basically, they, get it, they, they reference critical theory. And if you don't know what critical theory is, you don't know what they're talking about. So over the next class and a half, we're going to deal with the statement and critical theory. And then the last half of class, I just want to kind of have a summary and try to, what are the real gospel imperatives, how to think through these things? And then maybe some of my hopes for the future. David, would you mind closing the prayer? Lord, thank you so much for our sisters, thank you that you have uh, given us your word to guide us. Uh, thank you that uh, you've given us reason to discuss the, the practicalities and practicalities of these things which uh, present themselves as, um, as challenges that, that uh, the church can uh, speak to and address. Uh, we uh, appreciate Keith and his teaching and we ask for uh, guidance for next week and the weeks to come. Amen. Amen. And I love you all. <laughs>